This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Well, it's an interesting experience to be back in a room full of people instead of talking to a screen. Just like the old days, except everybody's older. <laughs> I want to uh, talk this morning uh, about the old days, and I'm going to discuss... Uh, a memoir uh, by an old friend of mine, uh, Lou Nordstrom, Roshi. Uh, who now is uh, in his 80th year. He started uh, training back at the end of the 60s, early 70s, something like that. And his uh, memoir, says Memoirs of an American Zen Pioneer, uh, really recounts a lot of what it was like uh, back then when he had a chance to study um, first with Edo Roshi and Soen Roshi, uh, the days when uh, Dabosatsu Monastery was just being built. He helped with the construction of that. And then with uh, Bernie Glassman and Maizumi Roshi. And uh, some of you may have seen the, the photograph downstairs of the uh, opening ceremony for uh, uh, Grayston uh, Zen community. Uh, you can see pictures of me and Lou in that crowd uh, in a photo that I think now goes about, back about 40 years. In any case, Lou's story uh, is both a one of a sort of an exemplary life of dedication to practice and a cautionary tale about how that practice can go horribly awry uh, before it uh, manages to sort itself out. Uh, Lou grew up in uh, very traumatic circumstances. <laughs> His mother abandoned uh, the family when he was three his father was alcoholic and also disappeared and left Lou to be raised by the father's senile grandparents. Uh, and they had no idea what they were doing or how to raise a child. They were by then nearly incompetent to function themselves. Uh, Lou has written a number of accounts and poems of those days. Uh, 
back probably in the uh, early 90s, I, when I was a printer, I printed a broadside of his poem, The Grandparents, in which he describes them serving him a dinner of uh, frozen French fries and a scoop of strawberry ice cream. Mm. Now, you know, you grow up in that kind of circumstance, life seems unreal, the self <coughs> seems unreal. You don't know who you are or what's going on, and Lou naturally sought out antidotes to those, that kind of early traumatic upbringing, you know. Zen is just made for people like that, right? Mm. For better and for worse. Uh, somebody like that both craves and fears attachment, both craves and fears belonging to a alternative institutional home. And part of what Lou describes in his account of the early days of Zen practice is that his self, his self-esteem, his self-image, his self-worth was so traumatized and negative he couldn't help but turn practice into a way of trying to just wipe the slate clean of all of that. Uh, just have it disappear into some kind of transcendental experience. And for whatever uh, reason, uh, somebody in that kind of dire straits with that kind of overwhelming uh, need to break out of that traumatized self there you know they're the people who are most likely to have some kind of big experience that fulfills that wish and Lou uh, had a doozy of one. Uh, very early on in his practice, while he was up at Daibosatsu, he, he writes and describes of this incredible, you know, enlightenment experience that he didn't know what to make of, but was very intense and dramatic, but seemed to confirm him on this path of being a monk. Uh, And the uh, dilemma of that kind of early experience is that you both become addicted to that kind of experience yourself, and he sort of describes being something of a samadhi junkie, you know, just sort of constantly losing yourself in absorption that is uh, basically training in emotional dissociation. 
uh, it, rather than resolve his emotional difficulties, it sort of created an alternative universe he could retreat into over and over and over again. Now, what happens in one of those experiences, and I'm sure, you know, most of you have had some taste of this in some degree or another, is we get a sense that this is it. There's just this moment. And this moment lacks nothing. In a strange way, regardless of its content, there's something that we could say is the perfection of the moment. But when the experience is very special and very intense, basically we get blinded by the light. And we get infatuated with the specialness of the experience, of the brilliance of the light. The, the bliss that may accompany it, whatever it is. And we lose sight of the basic message that just this is it. This ordinary day, this ordinary feeling of sadness or loss or pain, that's it. Instead, it becomes reified as this special experience that we want to keep repeating. And Lou writes about how uh, Zen is always in danger of reifying it into big mind or Buddha nature or the absolute. And the mythology around these things is that we feel that we've suddenly poked our way through the curtain of appearances and now we're seeing the reality behind everything. And reality gets a capital R, you know. So we think that we've gotten the ticket to the other world. And we love it because this world, you know, sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Now, maybe I'm offering a caricature of that kind of practice from somebody who's gone through it and come out the other side. But it's hard to overstate the way in which uh, this kind of attitude was uh, not a bug, it was a feature. It's what people came and wanted and what teachers were teaching. You know, Lou quotes Maizumi telling him, put aside all human emotion. (laughs) That's practice, right? And we, what we have done uh, following Joko in ordinary mind is try to retrieve the, the sense of our emotional reality as not being something we're here to escape or transcend, but something where, that we have to keep coming back to. It is found right in the middle of that, not somewhere else. Now, in a certain sense, what 
Lou describes that kind of curative fantasy, it's not so much a, you know, like it's a stupid mistake. It's more that it's an inevitable kind of transference reaction that Zen needs to elicit, but ultimately should not collude with. If we've, you know, we all come from, you know, a background that gives us emotional pain we're trying to do something about. And that something usually involves some notion of escape or becoming autonomous or impervious. Some curative fantasy. And it ought to be the point of practice, like therapy, to draw that out, to make it explicit, to see how that operates in all our life, what we're trying to escape through all of this. And, and gradually, safely lead ourselves back to the thing that we came here to avoid. I'm going to read um, a page or two from, from this book of Lou's. When he talks about the, um, when he sort of really clearly realized the whole curative fantasy and temptation in this uh, kind of longing uh, for the transcendent. And this comes from a time, uh, I think after he has transmission, but he's, in order to make a living, he sort of had to cobble together uh, adjunct teaching jobs all over town uh, for years as a way just to support himself. I was lecturing on a section from Suzuki Roshi's Zen Mind Beginner's Mind called Nirvana, the water Waterfall. In this section he speaks of the waterfall as being the original consciousness before birth to which one returns at and after death. For him, it is this waterfall that is real and true. When we are born, the waterfall falls and plummets in such a way that it becomes individuated into individual drops of water. These individual drops of water are our individual particular human lives. But for him, these drops of water aren't real. And they aren't real because they have feeling. There is no feeling in the waterfall. Feeling or emotion comes into being only when the waterfall is individuated. When there's feeling, we have problems, we suffer. There is no need to fear death because death in effect is nirvana, the return to the original condition of no, be no feeling. This waterfall is trans-individual, and in that sense, universal. My favorite Zen teacher, Soen Roshi, always spoke of endless dimension, universal life. Not my life, 
not this particular individual and unique life, but universal life, the life shared not only by all sentient beings, but in some eminently unclear sense by all beings. This life, if you will, of the universe, in that sense, universal. Zen notoriously speaks of being one with the whole universe. This state is considered true nature, essential nature, Buddha nature, original face, universal self. Even though true nature manifests in and as this very moment, the life is seen in trans-individual terms. Given what I have already said about my feeling that I couldn't see myself in any particular individual unique life, that I was in this sense invisible to myself, it's obvious that the idea that the individual drops of water aren't the true life, that the true life is the life of the unindividuated waterfall, the endless dimension universal life, which is trans-individual, would be enormously attractive to me. And this is what I realized in a flash of insight while lecturing on this section. I realized that the reason I had found this rhetoric of universal cosmic life so attractive was that I had abandoned and disowned my own particular individual life because it had seemed unreal. And it had seemed unreal because of the trauma of abandonment and neglect. And as soon as I realized it, I felt a profound sadness, a profound compassion and sympathy toward my own abandoned life. And at the same time, I vowed to reclaim this abandoned life and to live it as wholeheartedly and bravely as possible. I became, in effect, my own mother, returning to the life that I, she, had abandoned. This is a, you know, a very painful and difficult lesson for us to all learn. To recognize the way in which we have willfully infatuated ourselves with practice. And that so much of what we come to practice for is to collude in a kind of uh, curative fantasy to, of abandoning the hurt, pained, traumatized life that we've come here to, to escape. But Zen practice, if done with the right kind of psychological mindedness, brings us back to, to the very thing we came here to escape. And this is why Joko used to say it takes people at least five or six years, even working with her, to realize what Zen practice is actually about. And when they see that, most of them quit because they want really to go back, go find some other practice that'll help them with their curative fantasy. 
Lou, only after uh, many decades of suffering, had uh, terrible emotional and physical breakdowns that uh, led him eventually to go into therapy. And it was only in therapy that he said, suddenly I felt seen. I was visible and known by another human being. That was finally giving me the thing that I was missing. And I realized I could live this life of a hurt, abandoned child and essentially be reparented in a way that allowed me to have my life and my feelings. Now, because I encountered Joko, I've tried to integrate the experience he had in therapy with the experience that we try to provide in Zen practice and why over the years I've mixed up those two practices, offering both when necessary to, to my students. Because I see the kinds of dangerous byways traditional practice led people like Lou uh, to follow. I think Zen has the capacity to return everybody to the awakened experience of this is it. But it has to be very clear-minded about what it's aiming at. Because everybody comes aiming at the wrong thing. And too often what we call awakening experiences are just confirmations that that curative fantasy, oh, that's really going to work after all. It's powerful medicine, but it's got powerful side effects. And we have to be uh, very aware of what we're doing with and how we're playing with fire in this business. Lou, now that he's nearing 80 years old, has written a very brave and sort of emotionally vulnerable memoir of uh, what this practice really was like over the last uh, 40-some years of, in America. And I don't know that that counts as a disillusionment or de-idealization, but it is uh, a matter of being honest and real about uh, what this practice is, what it has been, how it can go terribly awry, but how if we see clearly what we're doing, it can be life-saving.